0: Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, an editor at Dialogue, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. Today I'm joined by three authors whose short stories have appeared in the new book, The Path and the Gate, Mormon Short Fiction, edited by myself and Robert Raleigh, and published by Signature Press. And the authors are Alison Brimley, the author of It's a Good Life, William Morris, the author of Always to Be Found, and Jack Harrell, the author of The Mathematics of God. Well, could we start by you giving us a brief introduction of your stories? Uh, Allison, would you like to start?
1: Yeah. Um, my story is about a teenage girl, um, member of the church, who suddenly wakes up one day and realizes that she has omnipotence of some sort, that she can cause anything to happen by just thinking it or wishing it. Um, And how that actually becomes kind of paralyzing for her, how that interacts with her belief in a God um, who has a certain plan for her, um, has some kind of will for her, but is not communicating that to her as far as she can tell. And how, um, yeah, just how that impacts her faith and becomes actually um, like a big obstacle to her having faith knowing that she has the unlimited limited power and doesn't know what she is supposed to do with it
0: uh, yeah and i want to talk about that this, this this interaction of the of the speculative with the with, with with the impact on faith that's a
2: really great uh way of taking it but uh william tell us about yours my story is called always to be found it um takes place in a future where uh the majority of the members of the church are located in South America and they are building generation ships that they are going to launch and find a, a new home. And the story itself comes in the form of a report from uh, a man in his early 30s or actually late 20s who is tending to uh, a group of 70s of the church who are in these pods that allows them to connect to the metaverse or virtual reality or whatever you want to call it. And they're out um looking for uh lost sheep so to speak members of the church who might be able to be connected to in the metaverse and and um convinced to to come join and, and get on the generation ships because they're uh, about to launch and so he goes in in search of um of these 70s and in in the metaverse and finds different situations with with each of them okay and jack can you tell us about your story
3: yeah, my story is called The Mathematics of God, and uh, it's about a guy who we won't talk about uh, which relative of mine this is sort of based on this part. A guy who, he, he's kind of a cybersecurity guy. He uh, is he owns a home, but he lives in the basement, and he's got all kinds of screens and things like that down there, and he rents up the upper... Part of He rents out the upper part of the house and a brother and sister from Ukraine um, move in to rent this place upstairs and he feels as though he needs to tell especially the sister about the Book of Mormon and introduce her to the gospel and uh, feels really strongly about this, but it's also mixed up in the fact that she's an attractive woman and he's a guy who lives in the basement, surrounded by screens all the time, and has a difficult time handling uh, this sort of thing, and then uh, trouble ensues.
0: Well, let's maybe start off with some questions of each other. And and I I noted that um, I know all of you are short story authors primarily. I know Jack Jack has has a novel out. Uh, but but mostly I know you from your short stories, um, and there's the, this this collection has a, a variety of authors with of different kinds of publication histories. But um, definitely all three of your people when I thought of, of creating this book, definitely people I wanted to go to because I love the inventiveness uh, of your stories. So I'd like to hear maybe some of uh, of the process about how you come up with your ideas and how you write them, and and ask questions from each other uh, to about how about your stories. Um, William, do you you have any questions for maybe the other two first? We'll kick off that way.
2: Yeah. So, um, my first questions were awesome, which was, so as I was reading, I found myself really looking forward, both with excitement and, and a little bit of dread to seeing what Gemma would do next with her powers. And I was wondering with, um, not necessarily where the idea for that came from but rather what were the first few uses of her power that you came up with like specific uses
1: honestly i i don't remember i i think in my mind all about all of the uses of her power were about on the same level like none of them seems more important to the plot than any other um because I really she really is a character who is afraid to do something too consequential. And so I didn't really think of her as like having any kind of plan or making any kind of grand, you know, any kind of grand action um, without being certain of what its consequences would be or without being certain that that's what she was meant to do. Um, so, yeah, I really don't remember what I envisioned first. It did take me quite a while to think of, like, what would be the conclusion to the story. I really didn't know how to end it. Um, but I do think she's she's a character who's very much, I think, based on myself as a teenager. I think, obviously, we had very different life experiences, but... Um, I I kind of think that's probably what 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 I would have done. I, I think it's it's kind of a trope out of like a fantasy or YA type of novel to have to be suddenly granted magical powers. And yet I feel like if I were in that situation, I would be probably afraid to really do anything with those.
2: When I thought that worked really well, um, because you she quickly sets some some boundaries. Um, like, uh, and as an example, I was kind of worried when Gemma disappeared, the food from her stomach, I was like, oh, are we going to go down that route? And then you quickly let us know that that was not something she would continue to do. And that was a relief because it really let me focus, you know, setting the boundaries that you did, it let me focus more on the actual point of the story, which is less the powers and more about, um, kind of what's the will of God, what is free agency? And and what do you do when you have power in relation to that? So so I thought that was that was awesome. Um, I also wanted to ask. So would you say the ending, there's kind of two endings, right? There's the there's the events that take place at the high school dance, which I won't spoil, and then there was kind of where Gemma finds herself a little a few years later in life. Mm-hmm. And um, like, at what point in the writing process did did those come? like both at the same time or one and then the other or like i'm just curious about that because it, it um to me it was interesting ending because is it, it would feel i think incomplete without the coda for me like if we just ended with what happened with at the high school dance i think it, it the story would have felt incomplete it wouldn't have like fulfilled all the ideas that it did but then by adding the additional ending it was like okay yes this is awesome
1: mm. good I'm, gl- I'm glad you felt that way yeah i I was interested, and again, I do not remember which, which came first, but I was interested in writing that sort of epilogue that in a way I think you could attach that to any sort of loss of faith story that would happen in a more traditional or more expected way. Um, I think we typically think of like a, tr- a, a difficult trial leading to a loss of faith because of something really bad that happened or trying to reckon with like evil things that might happen in the world or basically like human powerlessness in the face of God's will and trying to reconcile those two things. And so I was just interested in the idea of how actually having unlimited power might lead to the same type of faith crisis and the same type of sort of falling away and like in kind of in very mundane terms, like just like, I'm, I don't know, I'm not really telling my parents about it. Like it's kind of this awkward thing between us. Like I stopped going to church. It's just very mundane, but for, um, but like preceded by very unusual events.
3: Nice. Can I chime in? Yes. So the, this, uh, this trope, right? It's, it's connected to you're your young and suddenly you uh, are starting to have these superpowers, right? And part of it is sexual, but part of it is just the power to be an adult and to make decisions. And And it's really kind of scary, right? I think it's so interesting what you're doing there because she has all these powers And she does immediately recognize the need to like, uh, uh, well to bridle them, to use a church term Mm -hmm. for that. And then I think it's so interesting with the ending, how, uh, how it does become, sometimes you, you have these opportunities and it's overwhelming. Right. And, and, uh maybe you choke, right? You're just like, "Oh, I have this incredible uh these incredible opportunities and I don't know what to do." And the end or something like that. So that's very interesting what you're doing there. Yeah. Um
1: yeah, that's a good point. I I really hadn't thought of it in in that context. I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, but that a lot of these like more YA genre type of stories um mm-hmm. could be somewhat metaphorical for the power and the crisis and all these changes that come with, with becoming an right. adult. I really I really hadn't thought of my particular story in in those terms. Um but yeah well, I think it
3: could it be. all goes back to I was a teenage werewolf, right?
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> right. Where yeah. you know hair is growing on my body and I'm freaking out. <laughs>
1: right. And yeah, it was it was very fun. For me, like, as an adult now to write, like I said, I think this character has so much in common with myself as a teenager and to just, like, go back and reconnect to a lot of the things that really did happen to me as a teenager, a lot of things that didn't, obviously. But, yeah, just, like, how would myself as an uncertain teenager with, like, one certainty, which is that God is aware of me and God wants something specific. For me, and that I need to figure out what that is. Like that is the certainty, and then everything else is just you're kind of on your own <laughs> to to piece those two things together.
2: Well, and um, so this is where specul- using speculative fiction um, is interesting because you know sometimes there are readers, and even sometimes on occasion authors who are tempted to to take something speculative and really flatten it down into allegory but that's not really what speculative fiction is a, it's about it, it's about actually keeping the complexity at least for the most part in my opinion keeping you know some of the complexity of a realism but with heightening certain things or or taking certain ideas and saying okay how can we make this extreme or interesting or different or weird and so um Because, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in reading allegory, but I want there to be ideas and I want there to be symbolism in the story. And so, which is all a way of saying that, like, I like it when authors are confident in their use of the speculative. And so I was really glad that you didn't really have ambiguity in there about whether Gemma's power existed or not. Mm -hmm. Like, it did. Mm -hmm. And the the fact of his existence doesn't... You know that's not what the story is about, and it doesn't either answer all of her questions about free will and the nature of God. It just raises the stakes of those questions and allows them to play out in this way that's a little bit more, um, I won't say more interesting because obviously if you do it, the story as a straight realism story, it would also be interesting, but but bring something different to 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 that kind of narrative and those kinds of important questions.
1: Hmm. Yeah, Um I I. It was fun to delve into that world because I really do not write speculative fiction. I do tend to write more straight realism, Um, but it was fun to play with that. And yeah, just see see what what different kinds of questions could be raised in a very unrealistic setting. Um, But I had a question for you actually, William, on the topic of speculative fiction. I wondered about your story if Well, first of all, if you would call it speculative or if you would call it more hard sci-fi, do you see it as a as a speculative scenario or do you see it as something that is like a possible realistic vision for the future of Mormonism?
2: Sure. That's a great question. So <laughs> I am one of those annoying people who think that science fiction fantasy doesn't really exist and that we should just call all literature fantastica or all their perspective. So in one sense, yes, I am pulling tropes, um, none of them necessarily at all new to the field but from kind of near future art-ish science, science fiction. Um, a lot of trying to put some interesting twists on it, but for me, um, what was most important was, was less the, the science fictional apparatus. And the opportunity something like the the metaverse gave for me to put these 70 in these really different situations from maybe what they might find themselves in where we're at now and figure out how how they would react to them and what would happen and, and um and what is what are some of the consequences of the, the sort of embodied some. Dis- Embodiment that comes with with spending that much time in a in a metaverse or a virtuality or cyberspace, um, and so so yes. On the one hand, it is near future science fiction. This story, even I mean, if uh, I don't, I won't say that there is a um, straight continuity with all of my um, near future science fiction Mormon short stories, but certainly this picks up on ideas that are found in some of my other stories as well. And so, in that sense. Yes, I am making a bit of a prediction, but really, you know, this, this is a, a total trope to say that all science fiction is is really about, less about the future and about where we're at now and what we're worried about now and concerned about now. And so, you know, it could have just been Facebook. But it was more fun to make it, you know, not Facebook. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, let, how about, um, well, William, do you have a question for Jack? And then, then way to too, too, other stories.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna so this is this is about your story, but it's about other kind of works from Mormon literature, even beyond Mormon literature, which is why is having a main character who is interested in bringing together kind of faith and science and technology or or philosophy or some, some strict discipline and spashing together so compelling. That's
3: a great question. That's such a great question that uh, I'm going to have to think. Well, I think just beginning from this story, uh, I just started with where this guy is, you know. And, and like I said, I do have a relative who uh, he does work, distance work. And and one day we went to visit him and we go into his We go around the back of the house, downstairs, we walk into this living room, and there are like nine screens all over in the living room and on the kitchen counter, and uh, he said he goes into work like once a month or something. And so, you know, I was just like, whoa, this is, uh, I don't know what I think of this, (laughs) And, and so, you know, just beginning with a character like that, uh, and that's just kind of where I took it and, and then wondering, yeah, who lives upstairs? And this guy really was renting out the upstairs to a woman and so on. So yeah. Why is it compelling? Uh, well, I guess it's compelling because, uh, it's the world we live in. Right. And, and we want to make. I think anything that's meaningful to us, we want to make it meaningful in the present. I think, don't we? We don't, no one wants to live in the past. So if there are things that are important to me now, uh, I could try to just uh, say, I'm not going forward with the future, but that's not very healthy. So we've got to put these things together. Uh, uh, and we gotta make, uh, we, we, gotta make sense of it all.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, and there's what, what I love is that, you know, at one point he makes this, this very, uh, elaborate, I guess that's the word that I'd use, a virtual reality presentation for the, <laughs> for the brother and sister. Uh huh. That live upstairs and, and cause he thinks that the, the, the using technology is going to appeal to them. And of course it, it completely falls flat, but it was just, it just seemed like I could totally see somebody doing that <laughs> and going, okay, this is, yeah, you know, this is, this is, this is the upgrade from the film strips that I used to show on. Right. <laughs> if I was old enough to use film strips when I was a, a missionary. Yeah.
3: And I I could say one more thing. I think the only thing I thought of in advance to say about this story, uh, at the time when Andrew, when you sent out the invitation, so I wrote this story for the, for this anthology. And I'd be interested to know, did, did we all three do that? Did we all write this story for this anthology? We had nothing before the invitation. Nope. Yeah. I wrote it, wrote it for this one. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Well, I had just been watching podcasts and lectures uh, about mathematics, which I don't really know anything about, actually. Like, that formula is totally bogus. <laughs> but uh, but one of the things that I had heard time and again from these mathematicians is the idea that... Uh, it, it doesn't seem very plausible to say that human beings created math. In fact, what mathematicians always talk about is how they discovered some connection or for some formula. So this is a this is a phenomenon. Whatever math is, it does it seems to exist before we discover it. It seems to be true in and of itself in some way. And it's hard to say that, you know, if somebody wants to say somehow uh, we evolved mathematics or human beings or whatever, that's not very plausible because it's it makes sense, it's true, it's universal, and it was already there when we got there. And and I think that was one of the things that was really fascinating to me that made me think about writing a story about a guy who's you know in the cyber world and he's a a math geek and he's like you know doing formulas on the board i have a son-in-law uh who sometimes he gets distracted uh by doing uh uh i I can't algorithms i don't even know what they are my daughter-in-law my daughter has told me about this he'll get distracted and he'll be working on a math problem for like an hour when he's supposed to be doing something else. Cause you know how you just get caught up in these things,
2: right? Well, no, I don't know how I get caught <laughs> up in, no, do I. but, but other things, sure. Um, yeah, I was, so one of the other things I want to ask about Jack is that I was surprised What I, one of the things I didn't see coming. Okay. Well, let me, I, let me back up a little bit related to the, to the math point and the, and the, and, and your main character to, to Preston, um, is is like you know here's a case for the humanities if he if he if he'd understand a little bit more about human behavior and was a little bit able to pick up on social cues right maybe things would have got a little bit differently but one of the things that surprised me about the story was um when we get near the end and we discover the intensity of feeling and and knowledge of the church that the stanislaw the the Ukrainian brother has. And I was just wondering is, you know, was the character kind of designed that from the, like that from the beginning, or is that something you discovered while you're writing?
3: Right. That's one of those things. And I'm sure we all know this about how you're, you're into the story and then things start to develop that you're even surprised at and, and like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is, yeah, that w- that was a discovery in the writing process that he was this person. I got I got to throw in this other little footnote here about this. Uh, when I wrote this story, uh, or when I started the story at least, this is when Donald Trump was going through the whole thing with the phone call to Ukraine, and Ukraine was the bad guys, right? And now it's coming out, and now Ukraine's the good guys, and the Russians are the bad guys, and. And Andrew, I almost at one point emailed you and said, "Should we switch it? And should we make Stanislaw Russian?" Uh, but I thought, you know what? I don't know if it matters. Did
0: you think about this? No, <laughs> no. It was just, it was just. I mean, I'm not clear exactly what they were. I mean, were they were they govern operatives or were they are, are the, you
2: know sorry oh, right, yeah no. they're just kind of you know, no, figures part of the mafia? Yeah. You know, I mean. There are a lot of reasons why Ukrainian hackers could be in the U.S. Yeah. 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 Or from any, you know, any country.
3: On that, too, I think there's a, some virtue as a storyteller in saying, like, I don't even know what these people are myself because it doesn't matter. and uh, And all the more fun, you know. So if you ask, you know, who are they really? I would say, I don't know.
1: Yeah, that was, that was the question that I had because that was the thing that I found so compelling about the story. At that point, when you un- when you learn about Stanislaw's reaction, I was kind of expecting him to launch into this story like I was baptized in Ukraine when I was 16 or whatever, but but you never really get that. We don't really know exactly what his connection is. And I feel like both he and, is it Kaja? Is that how? Kaja. Kaja. Kaja, uh, I think. They both have so much mystery to them, like so many unanswered questions about what they really want out of these interactions that we don't really get an answer to. It just seems that this is such a such a failure of missionary work on the part of the narrator that, that the reason that we don't know much about them is because he doesn't know. He, yeah. he, he's consumed with, like, it's clear to me that Kaja... In their conversations, she doesn't care about math. She doesn't care about about the Book of Mormon. Um, these are things that the narrator is trying to understand by, you know, by helping them, forcing them to illuminate each other. I guess, but it's clear that that she is not interested in those things. But then I'm I'm left wondering, but what is she interested in? Because it seems she actually does have a connection with him. That she wants she wants something out of a relationship with him. Um, but I really don't know what it is and I don't think he knows.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so far you said my character has terrible social cues and he's an awful missionary
2: and they're <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> because, you know, I think that's a part of the whole thing. But the great thing about the story there, Jack, is there also is this layer where he does receive bits of inspiration. Now we don't, you know, as a reader, we have to judge on whether how inspired that inspiration is. But he's not just fully working only from the rational side of himself. He does he does have some faith, and he does receive some bits of inspiration, including a, a very interesting moment towards the end. So yeah. yeah,
3: yeah, and can and I think I'm maybe asking the question there: can can you get revelation through math? And I would think the answer would have to be yes. So.
2: Yeah, or he's crazy. <laughs> he's just a little intense and socially awkward. There you go.
0: Yeah. Well, Jack, do you have any questions for yeah, the other? Right. Yes.
3: Uh, yes. Well, I loved both of the stories, and Allison, I got to tell you, like, I don't know if you'll like this or not. My wife and I, we like to watch Hallmark movies. When uh, and so so when you know when the story first started, it's a girl. And there's a dance and all of this and, and all of that. Uh, it it was just really good. Really engaging right away with all that. And then I thought it was very interesting. Uh, there was a dark moment where she's, what is she doing? Like cutting the back of her hand and then healing it up. That was intense. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you, Uh, Did you flinch at that yourself or did you uh, were you like uh, and how did you decide how far to take that?
1: Yeah, I think. um, Yeah, I guess there's a couple of those moments. And like William mentioned, the evaporating food from her stomach, I think, is another kind of similar one where it's like these are our ways that we know like teenagers do engage in these behaviors and if given unlimited powers like what would they actually do um to themselves but again I guess I was I don't know again I guess I was just trying to access my own uh psyche as a teenager and I think fortunately I did not struggle with those kinds of actual like self-harm behaviors um I feel like I was fortunate to be um like pretty mentally healthy as a teenager but again i was just interested in like william mentioned those those boundaries that she places on herself because she's afraid to take things too far and 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 those kind of things just fall fell into the category of like i'll try it once because i can and it's weird that i can do this kind of thing to myself with no consequence um but yeah i wasn't really i wasn't really trying to explore like how much damage she could do to herself or to other people, but rather like how, like what, what is her mental state that she is so concerned with not doing any kind of damage, even with good intentions.
3: Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly a moment in the story where it's, as a reader. I'm like, okay, we're not messing around now. You know, this is serious stuff.
1: Yeah. 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 And I think that, um, yeah, I, I guess I just felt I had I had to up the stakes. It's, it's hard to write about a character who is afraid to act because at some point it's like, why are you the main character of the story? Like, what are you actually going to do? Um, so I knew that she had to do something, but something that was consistent with who her character actually was.
2: Yeah.
3: So I do have a question for William too. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I don't read... Uh, a lot of science fiction. And so how do you decide as a writer, you know, this is going to go in an anthology with a bunch of other stories that may not be like this at all. So how do you decide uh, where you're going to have a comma and then explain what that fancy word is, or where you're just going to let it go and say, you know they're going to get the gist of it and it's going to be fine how do you make that decision sure that is uh
2: um well so I am in the situation where i write i i write science fiction um mormon science fiction i write mormon faithful realism i write weird mormon stories and uh, um and it's always a question of how much do I explain with it? All three of them, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and so with the, with the science fiction, I figured that, A, I would stick with somewhat fairly well-known tropes of, um, you know, bodies in, a, in, a, in, a, in pods or whatever, however you want to picture them you know, hooked up to, to things, to, to, to the mechanisms that will keep them alive, but, um, and then, and then, and then able to directly access some sort of a cyberspace experience. Um, and so I always try to err on the side of letting the reader figure it out, (laughs) um, because it's, um, I just, I hate over explaining things. Um, however, one of the things that I did with this particular story is I did put it in the form of a report and the beauty of using a format like that is that it allows you to do some exposition and explain some things right in a way that isn't just like, um, the old, you know, old science fiction trip of, well, as you know, Bob, the, you know, uh, potentiometer does this and this and this, you know? And, and so, and so that was part of what made in my mind the story work was was being able to turn it into a report and and so that i could focus on just the 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 kind of the narration that i felt i needed to focus on in order to, t- to tell the story and and not worry about any mechanisms that you know or about how he you know the the narrator gets from a to b or what happens in, in between and he can just kind of Summarize the parts he needs to summarize and go into more detail on the parts that he needs to go into more detail on. What?
1: I was wondering, I, I, this story, um, reminded me somewhat of like a George Saunders story. I wondered if you, if he was, he is an influence on you at all.
2: I've read a little bit of George Saunders, not a whole lot. I would say no. However... There is a whole group of writers who I would say are more towards genre from where George Saunders mm-hmm. is
0: mm-hmm.
2: that are influences. Um, Sophia Samatar, Kids Johnson, um, a few others. Um, and so, so, yeah, so there is a certain school of what you might call more literary speculative fiction mm-hmm. that I very much... Enjoy reading, and that that my writing falls into. And I mean, you know, I you know, I'm actually contemporaneous with some of these authors, so they're not necessarily direct influences. A lot of it is actually being having the same influences that they also have, mm-hmm. so because there's that as well. Because I basically grew up and and um, read science fiction and fantasy a little bit as a teenager, but not a ton of it and read a lot of literary fiction as a, as a teenager a lot of literary fiction as um, as a college student and then started reading more science fiction and fantasy and so kind of came by my interest in genre in a way that is inextric- inextricably mixed up with all the literary stuff that I read mm-hmm. as well. And so that just kind of naturally manifests in, in the way I approach my my writing. Then, Well, can we maybe talk a little bit
0: about... Um... The appeal of writing short fiction, like I say, all all of you have 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 been writing a lot of short fiction, and um, and also Mormon fiction, and uh, all of you have written about Mormon themes and other stories as well. And you know, of course, not all a lot of your stories don't have Mormon themes, Mormon characters, but a lot of them do. It seems like so, either one of those kind of questions: what is the appeal of writing short fiction as opposed to a novel, uh, or or at least why is that why has that been the majority of your output that we've seen, and um. And then why Mormon fiction, uh, Jack? First, yeah, and and I do had I did
3: have another novel published by Signature Books, and I think it was 2018. A novel titled Caldera Ridge. Right. So yeah, so I've done two novels, and then the book of short stories. Uh, I would say, in one way, uh, short stories are just as hard as novels. Because in order to build those characters and make them real and meaningful uh, for a short story, you have to do just as much work as you do for a novel. And, and then this, the deal with the novel is, okay, you got these people, now you got to move them through more situations and so forth. But on, the, on that aspect of the character development... I think it's just as hard to develop characters for a short story as it is for a novel.
2: Yeah. I mean, the short answer, Andrew, is that there's more of a market for more of short fiction than there are for more of novels. um novels. And, and which is, which is almost the reverse, I would say, of the national market. I mean, certainly there, there are all sorts of small magazines out there where, you know, if you want to write literary short fiction, or even, um, science fiction fantasy, um, but in terms of, of actually getting published in the field, there's just more of a, a market for short fiction. But also, it, it, it to, to Jack's point, yes, it, you, you have to be able to, you know, it takes a lot of work to conjure the characters in the world, but it is less of a grueling grind to write. Even if it's not, even if you, you know, you're writing draft, draft after draft after draft of a short story, um, it, it's still not you know, the year and a half, it takes to write a novel. (laughs) Um, and so, and so that is another aspect of it. And, and I would, you know, and most, most Mormon writers do not have the luxury of, of being able to write full time. Um, and so, and so because of all those factors, uh, you know, I, I want to give you an answer that says, oh yes, because you know i feel called to the short story and there's an aspect of that i, I like writing short stories short stories is a really interesting form because um because you can take uh you know and we see this i think in all three of our stories you can take these situations that are really interesting and unusual and kind of push them to a certain extreme and sustain it right in a in a in a this concentrated nugget and there's just a, a lot of satisfaction in doing that But part of, and I'm a believer that part of why writers should write is to be published and to find an audience. And so, you know, I would love to see more of a a market for the Mormon novel and certainly having, you know, BCC Press um, publishing as much as as, as they do and Signature continuing to put out, uh, you know, one or two novels uh, uh, every year or two is great, but it's just not, you know, the market's not quite quite there. So that's my longish answer. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome
1: yeah, I, I feel I I have mostly thought of myself also as a short story writer. Um, but when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, I thought I'm going to try to start a novel because I just know like writing is going to become more difficult for me. And I want like a long term project that will keep me engaged, something that I can leave and come back to as I need to. And my daughter is now about to turn five. <laughs> so it's it's been a lot more than a year and a half but and i've had another daughter since then and so it's been it has been very sporadic but i have for the last five years really i have mostly been just working on one novel and um so i personally am feeling excited to try and wrap this project up and get back to short stories because i have I feel like I just collide with so many character ideas and plot ideas and I, I can't just keep stuffing all of them into one novel. So I want to kind of disconnect from that and like get back to writing in shorter bursts.
0: Okay. Well, anything else anybody wants to say or questions that any other questions do you have for the group? Really appreciate all the
3: work you've done to put this whole thing together because, you know, like being completely from my own selfish point of view, I have a story I'm pleased with and it's got a home thanks to your invitation. So that means a lot. That, yeah.
0: Thank you. Well, so we've been joined. Let me, let me just introduce those, those of you who have read these stories now and you're excited to read more. I'll just let you know that um, so William has a collection that came out last year called "The Darkest Abyss: Strange Mormon Stories." So then this this story really could have been in that in that collection. Uh, it fits perfectly. It could have. And there's another story from the same world, right? Another uh, of the <laughs> ships that go to to another planet. Um, yeah. I love that collection a lot, and has um, also done a lot of editing lately. He's, he's edited collections called uh, "Monsters and Mormons." Another one's called about which is a kind of horror. Another one called State of the Deseret, which is alternative fic- fiction, uh, alternative histories, I mean. And uh, just has a new
2: Uriantum issue out. Can you, can you tell us about that? What's the, what's the Uriantum issue? So the Uriantum issue is, is, is a genre-focused issue. It is a mostly science fiction, fantasy, and horror, um, although there is some humor, and, um, and there is some... Well, I don't want to spoil what it is, There's some ones that are a little bit more fairy tale like, I guess is what what I would say. Oh, and there's one that that you could could be viewed as alternate history, but it is it is there are there are poems, there are short stories. There's a great interview between um, Dave Butler, uh, the the Mormon science fiction fantasy author and and author of Strange Mormon Fiction as well, um, interviewing Sandy Peterson, who is a, a game developer. Um, worked on Doom, worked on the f- one of the very first role playing games called uh, Call of Cthulhu, a really interesting video conversation that you can watch. And then there's also a really interesting paper on Brandon Sanderson and the Book of Mormon. And so there there's something for everyone in, in, in this issue, and it's available at, um, well, if you go to the Association of uh, you can get the link to the that area Antum issue. Okay. Right. Yes, I've, I've been diving into those and I've really been enjoying them. Oh, can I pitch one more other thing, Andrew? Please. I also have a story out in Wayfair. I don't know if everyone, if all of your listeners are familiar with with uh, Wayfair, which is a, a substack publication and also a print publication. They've been running a lot of um, kind of spooky Mormon fiction during the month of October. Um, and I have a story in there that is about a guy who kind of has some things in common with... with it's main character in Jack's story in the sense that he is has a kind of an intense focus on technology and 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 the world. Um and it also involves mushrooms. So I'll look for that. It's called filling the measure.
0: It's it's the wafer has been really um surprising. I mean when they first came out they said oh we might do mostly going to do nonfiction pieces and essays and maybe we'll do a little bit of fiction. But this last year they've been or last at least nine months or so they've been doing one story a month, basically at least one story a month, and so of, of short it, fiction, they really dived into it. So that's you know, w- along with dialogue, near Anthem, and Sunstone, that's really opened up a new venture place. And and they pay right. Yes, yeah, that's that's, that's great. Allison is uh, I, I know you especially from from the stories that have won AML short fiction awards, the Pew that was in Dialogue and Thin Walls that was in a a, a literary journal. Um, and so I, I highly recommend those. The, the Pew might be the easiest one to get on dialogue since all the dialogue stories are available online. Um, and you're working on a novel. Is there anything else you want to promote?
1: No, that's all I've got. Like I said, I am working at a very, very slow pace right now. That's the stage I'm at in my life. So that's about that's about all I've got to talk about right now.
0: Okay, great. We look forward to the novel. <laughs> uh, Jack has, has been... Uh, the author of two novels, Vernal Promises and Caldera Ridge, and uh, a collection of stories, The Sense of Order and Other Stories, uh, that I, I I love that one very much. And then also Writing Ourselves, Essays on Creativity, Craft, and Mormonism, a book about writing. Uh, so look for those, everybody. Hey, Jack, what's, what's the name? I'm right, just right now, the, the story that appeared in Ariantum that was about a, a, a member who meets somebody that might be the devil yeah
3: it's the title's calling an election <laughs> so the guy says he's from Salt Lake City uh but some weird stuff
0: happens <laughs> to say the least that's an amazing story <laughs> I've always that's, that's when we definitely come out I don't know exactly what happened here but so I highly recommend that. good good Okay, um, let's see, I got a little up. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. This show is a part of the Dialogue the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent podcasts that promote inquiry into all aspects of the LDS tradition. It includes re- wonderful shows like Basin Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepsen. And it's produced and edited by Daniel Foster Smith, who also provides the music. And to hear more, go to dialoguejournal.com. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the Scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the Gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.